Before I ask you guys how you're doing, I want to remind you that you had an extra hour of sleep this morning. So Crosspoint, how are we doing? Good, good. I'm glad I qualified that so I wasn't disappointed. Well, if you're joining us today new, my name's Ryan. It's my honor to pastor here at Crosspoint Church. If you're joining us online, we sure do miss you in person, but we are glad that you've taken the opportunity to join your church family as if you are here, present with us, um, scattered about in your homes throughout the city. And I also understand that there are many watching us from many different places around the United States uh, and sometimes even around the world, crazy enough. And to think that God's work in his word would go further than ever uh, with our meager work here is something we rest and rely upon him for. Uh, before I get started with a sermon, undoubtedly something that's on many of our minds today is the election taking place on Tuesday. And it's in, with that in mind that I want to offer you just one simple reminder. No matter who sits in the White House or the Oval Office, Jesus Christ is always, always, always on his throne. So no matter who the presidents or prime ministers in all of human history and world history has ever been, God has always been wor at work even through those whom we thought God would work through the least. We see that in the book of Daniel as kings and princes and rulers and authorities rise and fall, and we see it in the world today. And when I say that, I recognize that we have a great responsibility as citizens of, these, of this country, and that you should vote with biblical conviction as you believe God has called you but secondarily, I remind you that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom far greater that will last far longer than the United States of America ever will. Amen? Amen. So let me pray. Father, we lift up this election. God, we pray for the leadership of our country, President Trump, Senate, the House, the Judiciary, Lord, we pray for our elected officials here locally and in our state. Lord, we pray for whatever transfer of power might ensue. God, you only know that. But we ask, God, that we would submit to your will regardless. We would walk in your ways and that we would know, God, beyond a shadow of a doubt. God, you are the one who turns human history towards your will. God, give us comfort in that. God, I pray that on November 4th, we realize that we are still ministers of your great and glorious gospel, and we live in a country desperately in need of you. So may we walk according to your will no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was 1517 on October 31st that the world changed radically. There was a little German monk named Martin Luther. And 
he nailed what was called the 95 Thesis to the door at the Castle Church in Gutenberg. Wittenberg, sorry. There's Martin Luther. He's not only famous for his haircut, he's famous for nailing that 95 Thesis to the door at Castle Church in Wittenberg. And it was something so powerful and so profound that he had no idea how God would use it when he did it. In fact, today historians look back on that day, October 31st, 1517, and they wonder how this 95 thesis spread like wildfire all throughout the known world. The wasn't anything abnormal that that Luther did that day. In fact, it probably wasn't even the first time he nailed something to a church door. Church door was like an announcement board for conversation. It would have been our modern day social media where you want to pick a fight with somebody, go ahead and get online and do it on social media. Well, Luther did want to pick a fight. He wanted to create discussion and he wanted to create discussion around these 95 tenets that he believed in. And so I don't have the a whole lot of time this morning to get into all of these 95 tenets, but I want to I jump into two by which all the 95 seem to surround. The first one is that the Bible is the primary and central authority of all religious life. When I say religious life, hear me say that day was Catholicism. The Bible is the primary and central authority of the church. Now in that day, the church, the Catholic church, seemingly ruled the known world. There wasn't a division between church and state. The church was the state and the pope was the president. He was the kingmaker. He was the one that the nations regarded as the one in power. And how did the church have power? How did the church keep its power? How did the church use its power? Well, they did so by religion. And Martin Luther, with his 95 Thesis, says it was rather extraordinary in that day. It wasn't that the Word of God derived its authority from any person. It's that if any person had authority, they derived that authority from the Word of God. So that meant that the Word of God was not submitted to the Pope, but the Pope was submitted to the Word of God. And that meant anything in here superseded anything that he or any other authority said. So the Word of God was central. Secondarily, and this is major, Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Now, we, we stand here today and we're like, well, well, duh. That matter has already been settled. And it has been settled, right? 1517, it was settled. And it struck a chord with the people of the world, particularly in Germany, and it spread like a wildfire. They struck a chord because they had been under the heavy hand of a Catholic church that said in order to be saved, you had to do some type of work to earn your salvation. Something merited your salvation versus Christ 
earning that salvation for you on his cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. Let me ask you guys the question. If you could earn your salvation, then why Jesus? Why the cross? And that was the question that loomed in this ancient world. And on 1517, it became settled through a course of massive events if you've studied church history in the Reformation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. I start the sermon off this way to remind you that the greatest work we are dependent upon God for is the work of renewal, deep, deep inside of our hearts. It's a work of renewal because our hearts have been turned black because of sin. We have each looked to our own ways. We've each turned to our own ways. But we know from the book of Isaiah that the Lord has laid upon him, upon Christ, the iniquity of us all. Now what made Martin Luther write these 95 theses, nail them to the church at Wittenberg, stand before councils and kings and authorities and say, here I stand. It's all I can do. I will not recant my testimony. I will not deny what I have said. Why would Martin Luther do so to the risk of his own life? Well, the Catholic Church was in the, middle of a building, in the middle of a building campaign. They were raising money for St. Peter's Basilica. And as they raised money for St. Peter's Basilica, they, they uh, employed a, a rather industrious man named Johann Tunsil to help raise money among the people of the, uh, of the Roman world, this Catholic world. And Johann Tunsil is famously coined the phrase, he said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As if you could buy forgiveness. As if you could buy salvation. And the, ra- the way that the Catholic Church raised money to build its most powerful foundational con- cathedrals was by selling people the lie that somehow they could buy their own forgiveness and the forgiveness of their loved ones. And Martin Luther said no. And it sparked a reformation. It was a bloody reformation. It changed the hands of power and authority all throughout Great Britain and France and Europe. It changed the known world. In fact, we here today know the world as we know it because that monk, that little German monk, studied the Scriptures, and by the power of the Holy Spirit came to believe the Word of God as the Word of God and was willing to take it to the authority of man to say that I come under a higher authority. I come under the authority of the Word of God. So today, friends, I want us to understand that. I want us to understand that work, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And salvation belongs to the Lord, then that means that we are to cast ourselves entirely upon Him. Here's our big idea for today. 
Unless God is in the work, it's empty. Unless God is in the work, it's empty. That starts with salvation. That starts with us recognizing that unless God has redeemed us, counted us new by his death, burial, and resurrection, unless Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for my sins, then my life is without meaning and purpose and power. That's a bold statement for our world today. When we value people of meaning and purpose and power as the CEO of big companies, as people who are self-made men and women, those are the people who have meaning and purpose and power. But the scripture says, and if we hold this as the highest authority, it is to be true that their life is meaningless without salvation by grace through Christ a gift of God by faith alone. And that means that we, we, no matter what our inadequacies are, no matter how great our sin is, no matter how much we've ever done to push God away, he brings us back. He brings us back. He brings us back. Unless God's in the work, it's empty. So Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. First point related to the Lord's work is that we must know our limits. One of the powerful, uh, one of the powerful things that, that, that we confess about the Bible here at Crosspoint is that, that God is completely sovereign means he's all-knowing. It doesn't just mean that God knows it in his mind, but it means that God's heart is completely in knowing us. And not only is his heart completely in knowing us, but his hands are at work to accomplish his will, and nothing can thwart those things from taking place because God knows he does, and nothing can stop God's hand from doing not even you, not even me. And if we are to understand God's sovereignty, then we begin to naturally understand our own limitations. And that's because God is sovereign and all-knowing and all-powerful. It means that I'm not. And it means that unless the Lord builds the house, my work is vanity. This author here is Solomon uh, interesting thing about some of the Psalms of Ascent is that four of these Psalms out of 15 were written by Solomon's dad, King David. One of them was written by Solomon, and it's very Solomon-esque. If you know the book of Ecclesiastes, you've heard that word vanity before. He says it quite frequently uh, in, in Ecclesiastes. That word vanity is uh, a, a, word, a, a Hebrew word called hevel, which means smoke. So when he says vanity of vanities, he's saying meaningless, meaningless, which if you see smoke, you know it's a substance that appears for a little while and then it disappears. It's like a vapor. You can move your hand through it. There's nothing to it. And essentially, actually not essentially, definitely what Solomon is saying here is that unless God is in the building, your labor is just smoke. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes, and it goes away. It's purposeless. It's powerless. It has no meaning. Now, this strikes to the heart of our lives because I know built into each and every one of us is, is a heart that beats for purpose. 
meaning, significance. Maybe you don't want to run a company, and that's okay. Maybe you don't want to run uh, 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 an organization or a church, but, but even here, it, it, it goes into the caring of our children, or children caring for parents, or, or loving one another, that we would find purpose and significance and meaning in the call that God has on our lives. And unless God is in that work, we're doing it for nothing. Unless God is in that work, it lacks meaning. It just is here for a little while and vanishes. Understanding our limitations means that we realize that if God is sovereign, then we are not. How many of us can put on our resume all knowing? <laughs> Maybe you actually have before, because we often lie on our resumes. I know everything. And then they're like, no, I'm not hiring you. Um, we're not all knowing. We don't know the future. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we're weary. That's reason, one of the reasons why, as we see later, we struggle to sleep at night, because not all of life is in our control. This is the reason why we're workaholics. If you've struggled with workaholism, you understand that you burn the candle at both ends to make progress where other people don't. You go to bed later and you wake up earlier in order to control the world by your efforts rather than resting in God's effort. You know, God's work is all the way from the book of Genesis where God is the one created, creating, and then God invites man into this work and he says, fill the earth and subdue it. It's an invitation to, to be co-laborers with the, the great laborer of God. There's an article in Business Week magazine. This was back in 1999, and the article was entitled The Confessions of a Workaholic. And a guy named Ron Shear, businessman, says, the, workaholism is a, the workaholism issue is a real one for me. I am never more than a couple steps mentally from the computer. What keeps me tethered is the fear that if I stop, my whole world will come crashing in on me. It's hard to get out of that mindset even for a few minutes. It was written back in 99, and the best that they had was a laptop. How many of us find this kind of controlling addiction with our devices almost always there? And if we are not, we somehow think that the whole world is collapsing just because our phone is in our pocket. We think that something is going wrong because we've become so tethered to being in control of our own little worlds that that fear and that restlessness seemingly overtakes us. And that's because we don't believe in the sovereignty of God and that through God's sovereignty, he always accomplishes his will. He never misses his mark. That we would believe that. Paul David Tripp, he says, God is sovereign. You and I aren't. This isn't just theology that we should proclaim on Sunday. It must be the foundation of our identity every day of the week. God is in absolute control, and he's infinitely good. That's the other thing that's important that we understand about God's sovereignty is God's not just up there as a cosmic killjoy just absolutely crushing you because he takes joy in it. 
God is sovereign to bring about his goodness in your life in every situation and circumstance. There is not one moment of your life where you are ever alone because God is infinitely good and he knows you're going through the hard times and he's using those hard times for your good and his glory. Those things are never opposed to one another. And if we understand the sovereignty of God and that this good God who's sovereign over my life has placed me in human history at this time, then I have purpose and meaning and value like I never ever imagined. I can put my identity in him. It's not my work that saves me. It's not my work that says anything about me. It's he's got the final say over my life. And so I lay myself completely and totally before him in trust. And as a result of that, that surrender, as a result of that surrender is an obedience to do his will. And so we have God's sovereignty on one hand and we have our responsibility in the other. Solomon assumes that we're going to (laughs) work. He assumes it. Every human being is going to work. Every human being is building something. The question is, is God in the work And are you working for him, for his glory, for his renown, for his fame among the nations, for his work in your workplace, in your family, in that place where he has called you to? Our everyday, ordinary lives will never be like Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the castle church in Wittenberg. But Martin Luther never thought he would be Martin Luther either in doing that. But God so powerfully used him. And God used many people in Luther's life just in the same way God's used many people in your life, just in the same way God's going to use you in the lives of many others. And your response to God's work is to work alongside of him. It's to cultivate God's good earth for God's good purposes. It's not to withdraw into our own selfish cocoons and with bad theology say let go and let God. It is to enter into with our labors the purpose that he has designed us for. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared before him that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works for you to walk in, every one of you. God has prepared that. He's he's designed that. In his sovereignty, they're there. What's our responsibility? Walk in them. Take his next step as it relates to our faith and discipleship in the Lord. Take that next step towards trusting in Christ. It's all on him, but man, we trust him. We make the moves. We work on his behalf. We trust that he's building. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, just say that word with me, it's whatever, okay, ready? One, two, three, whatever, whatever you do. If you didn't say it, then you didn't participate in God's work. Um, Sorry. Uh, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not man, (laughs) your boss is not your boss. Those who you support to are just underlings of the king. Work heartily for the Lord and not man, knowing that from the Lord, from him, you will receive 
The inheritance is your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your inheritance is everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you. That's what his salvation bought for you. His salvation bought for you the inheritance of God. Everything that the firstborn son of God who lived a perfect, sinless life deserved from God the Father as his inheritance belongs to you. But that we would walk in him. That we would know that it's the Lord that we serve and not man. That we would not be confused with those things. On Monday when things get challenging at our job and we just want to give up, that we would remember that it's the Lord that we serve and not man. I belong to him. The second thing we should do is notice the warning signs. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. That's not just a promise on time change Sunday when we fall back. That's even a promise for when we spring forward. (laughs) He gives to his beloved sleep. Sleep. Sleep is... It often reveals this practical atheism of our hearts, doesn't it? When we think that we've got to work, when God's saying to rest in Him, and we burn the candle on both ends, and we go late to rest, and we wake up early, and it's like eating the bread of anxious toil. Eating the bread of anxious toil, you can only imagine it's just eating empty calories, right? It's eating nothingness, and it's vanity. It's vain. It's smoke. It's no substance that's filling your life and your heart. It's the things that you do that you think is going to get you further. God is saying that it's like us being saying, I'm thirsty and going to the toilet to drink water to give us sustenance, to quench our thirst. doesn't work. Now, I I, want to say a little bit of something because it's, it's, it's important that I say this related to our culture. Sleeplessness and anxiety are not indications that you don't follow after God in Christ, okay? Hear me say that. Sleeplessness and anxiety are not always indications that you don't follow after Christ. But it's important that you hear me say this. It is something that should cause you to turn your heart towards God and ask the question, am I? Am I falling after Christ? Because one of the results of anxiety, actually the Scripture says, don't worry, pray. And the reason why Scripture says, don't worry, but pray, is because when we worry, when we have anxiousness, that anxiousness should drive us to dependence upon God. When we struggle with sleeplessness, that sleeplessness should drive us to dependence upon God. Not on pills, not on medications, but a dependence upon God. Not that pills and medications can't help. But don't let them be a God replacement. God can use the means of men to help you with the issues that you face related to the mental and the physical and the emotional. And I want you to to go after those things that God has given us to to live healthy lives. But, But we've created all the things in the world that can cause us to say, oh, I can just dismiss God because I don't need him anymore because I have all the remedies that man offers And then at the end of the day, it is vanity. It's meaningless. John Piper, he says, Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. 
He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121, verse 4. But we will, for we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to our bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is the chronic chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. (laughs) Thanks, John. Um, How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable of God. And, And we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let that lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and sleeps. He's not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all our anxieties on him sleeps. Man, we would, when we go to bed, it would be a reminder of the God that we worship. Rather than the practical atheism in our lives that says we have to do it, it's that God has done it. And obviously, right now, my time is to rest in him. That our sleeplessness and anxiety would not be rooted in the fear of man and that tomorrow is in my control, but we would have a rest in God that starts with the fear in Him. We know that Solomon writes in the Proverbs that it is the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. I think you could say it the same way related to sleep. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of sleep because He gives to His beloved rest. That's the brings me to the third point. Trust that God is the one building your household. Trust that God is the one building your household. Verses three through five. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the chil- the children of one's youth. Uh, this week. Ruth wrote in our devotional, if you don't have a Crosspoint devotional, um, even if you're a guest today, I'd love for you to take one because I think it'll help you follow Jesus, especially in the midst of the isolation of the pandemic, to have a church family that is just real people you could relate to. And, And Ruth says this really well. She says, what blessings come from the giver of all life? God graciously brings new life to his regenerate, just as he graciously brings new life in the womb. Many people long to start a family, and some couples may try for years to conceive, but in the end, it is the the giver of life who holds such blessings in his hands. Such a good word. Ruth, by the way, is pregnant with her third child, so it resonates with her. I don't know about you, but I've walked through some intimate issues related to this blessing and this gift with people. Issues related to parenting, issues related to singleness, issues related to the fact that some people just can't conceive. 
Carrie and I went through this ourselves. We wondered if God's blessing was on our life because we could not have a children, any children. And we started evaluating ourselves and comparing ourselves with others who would get pregnant. And we wondered, God, we're better than them. Why do you let them get pregnant and my wife's womb is still barren? It was, it was not right. It was a comparison that led me away from compassion and towards a selfishness. God broke me of that. God broke us of that as we threw ourselves upon the dependence of the Lord. But the reality of this verse is that God is building a household. You know, this verse, yes, there is a lot to learn from this from parents and families, but there's also a lot to learn from this as the household of faith. We're the church. Another thing that Ruth said in her devotional that I thought was really powerful is that no one is... is um, can, can be excused from this raising up of children. That, that there are spiritual sons and daughters that are being raised in our midst right now that you can be invested in, that you should be invested in. Because part of what's important for us to, to do as the church is to hand over the work of the gospel to the next generation. And, and you are involved in that as you see that those who are among us are those who are going to carry on the message of the gospel long after you and I are here. Children are a blessing. They're a reward. A reward. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. But man, we've got to see children in the way that God has called us to see them. I think... There's two dangers related to the way that we see children in the world today. Number one is we could see them as an interruption. An interruption. Man, they're just getting in the way of my life. In fact, our culture today treats them as an interruption. Our culture today can often treat children as an inconvenience. An inconvenience that has to be done away with. And this is not an election uh, this is not me trying to get political, but just being honest with the way that it is in our country even and around our world is that instead of the, the, a child being the fruit of God in our womb, we consider it a curse and we must get rid of it and abort the child. That's an incredible, not a blessing, but we are taking the blessing of God and we are saying back to God, I don't want it. And, 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 and there's something about even that that says we as the church must come around the person and help them see in every single way beyond our vote, beyond our politics, that this child is a wonderful blessing. And I am to come alongside of you to see that this child becomes a spiritual son or daughter of the Most High King. Man, if we would not just legislate, but we would get in the lives of people with these deep struggles that feel that that's the last resort, that we would see change in this world like maybe we've never seen it before. But it's not only an interruption on a national level, but one on a personal level. Uh, there's a woman named Gloria Furman. She, she wrote a book called Treasuring Christ When Your Hands Are Full. She wrote it to moms. Really powerful book. She said, by God's grace, I can resist the temptation to treat my children as interruptions to my will for my life. Instead, 
God enables me to treat my children as precious gifts he's using to shape me into his image and according to his will for my life. So rather than children being interruptions, they're, they're being used for our sanctification. Parents, our, our kids are being used, in other words, to bring about God's will in our life. Like when your child throws a temper tantrum in the grocery store, it's important that you understand that God was just as sovereign today as he was when Jesus went to the cross, that he's going to use that for your good and his glory. And then the other danger that we get, we, we get into is that instead of seeing our children as a gift, we see them as God. God replacements. They become idols in, my, in our lives, and they, we see them as our everything. Rhett Dodson, he says, if you put your children on the throne of your heart or the throne of your home, how will you ever teach them to treasure Christ? How will you ever teach them that Christ fills all in all, and that he is all in all. If we want for our children to be that who carry forward the gospel into this lost and broken world, it means that we have to show our children that they are never, ever, ever to belong on the throne of my heart or their own but that Christ is the one on the throne and he is there all in all. And so there's a great tendency that we have is to turn the gift into God and then that gift becomes a curse. But listen, if the child is a blessing, point them to Christ. If the child is a blessing, know that God will use them in your life to point you to Christ. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. There's a imagery there, and the imagery is that the fighting was done at the gate. That's where the enemies came to do battle. And the father isn't afraid to go down to the gate because he's got his sons with him to do the battle alongside of him. Uh, the psalmist in verse chapter 23 says that God prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. How does he do that? Well, God uses children to bring about his universal plan for your health care and elder well-being. You, you want to you have a long life according to the Bible? Uh, it's, well, it's brought about through children. And that, that was the, the, the universal health care plan of the Bible is that your children would foresee, would, would help ensure that you have a long and healthy and prosperous life. That's kind of a non-Western thinking there. But there's something even more powerful for us to think about as the church as we see raising up kids as the household of faith is that the church, people of God, the family of faith is closer and more connected to me than even my, my physical family. And so in being involved in the household of faith is that which ensures your livelihood, your care. And you wonder how God's going to care for you. Well, you can get all the insurance plans. You can do all of those things. But, but really, it's about investing in people's lives here and now among us. And know that God... We'll use that. 
And in all these things, unless the Lord builds the house, whether it's the construction project you're involved in or whether it's trying to protect that which belongs to you, we labor alongside of God. We labor alongside of God in the raising up children, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We cast ourselves entirely upon him when we face fear and anxiety and sleeplessness. We know that unless God is in the work, it's empty. Charles Spurgeon wrote this devotional called Morning and Evening. And in it, he asked this question. He says, Reader, is prayer the heartbeat of your weariness? Our application today is that we are to cast ourselves entirely upon God in prayer. Entirely upon Christ in prayer. The reason why that's our application because in, unless the Lord builds the house... We who build it labor in vain. It means that we're dependent entirely upon him. He, he brings this about through a simple story. And the story's in 1 Samuel 1.27 where Hannah prayed that God would open her womb and give her a child. And she says, for this child I prayed. He says, devout souls delight to reflect upon those mercies that they have been obtained in answer to prayer. For they can see God's special love in them. When we can name our blessings, Samuel that is, asked of God, they will be as dear to us as the child was to Hannah. Penaniah had many children, but they came as common blessings, unsought in prayer. Hannah's one heaven-given child was far more precious because he was the fruit of sincere pleadings. How sweet was the water that Samson found at the spring of him who called. Did we pray for the conversion of our children? How doubly sleep sweet when they are saved. To see in them our own petitions answered. Better to rejoice over them as the fruit of our pleadings than the fruit of our bodies. Have we asked the Lord for some choice spiritual gift? When it comes to us, it'll be wrapped up in the golden cloth of God's faithfulness and truth and will be doubly precious. Have we sought success in the Lord's work? How joyful is the prosperity that comes flying upon the wings of prayer. It is always best to get blessings into our house in the legitimate way by the door of prayer than by... uh, then they are blessings indeed and not temptations. Even when prayer is not speedy, the blessings grow all the richer on the account of the delay. The child Jesus was more lovely in the eyes of Mary when she found him after having searched for him. What we gain by prayer, we should dedicate to God as Hannah dedicated Samuel. The gift came from heaven. Let it go to heaven. Prayer bought it. Gratitude sang over it. Let devotion consecrate it. Here will be a special occasion for saying, of your own I have given to you. Reader, is prayer your heartbeat or your weariness? Which? As we close for communion, I want to ask that you would turn to the Lord in prayer and dependence in this time. You know, we talked about children being used in, in the quiver 
in the Lord's hands for the Lord's work. It was King David who wanted to build God's house, his temple, and God said to David, you're not going to do it. Your son is. And it wasn't about building God's temple that God was communicating to David that was going to be built. It was about building the household of faith long beyond himself because it ultimately wasn't Solomon who built the house, but it was David's descendant, Jesus, the one who came from the line of David, a child. Through that child, God built the household of faith. God saw his own son climbing up the hill with the cross, that old rugged cross. And as he carried that cross to the hill, he was beaten and whipped and tortured. And our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. And it was that child, God's son, that took our punishment so that we could be sons and daughters of the most high king. We are children that God uses in his hands to do battle against sin, Satan, and death, all by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he ensures that we have his victory because the Lord is building his house and the gates of hell shall never, ever, 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 ever prevail against it. Trust in his work. Cast yourself entirely upon him. And as you take communion, remember the links that God has gone to ensure that his work would be completed. It cost him his beloved son in whom he was well pleased so that through his work, God can say to you, I am pleased with you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, thank you. We rejoice in you. We worship you. You are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. God, we cast ourselves entirely upon the cross because we know that we are not crucified there, but your son, Jesus, was crucified there, now is seated at the right hand of God. And because he is resurrected, Lord, we have freedom. And we can trust in you to complete the work that you have begun. It's in Jesus' name the church says, amen. Pastor Josiah is going to lead us in this time of worship. And as, as you're ready, you can go and, and grab the elements from the table. And you can take the uh, communion wafer. And you can take the, the juice uh, uh, when you're ready. Remembering that it's not just a symbol. Yes, it's a symbol that we're partaking in. But there is a real work that it's connected to. A work of God setting you free. Let's rejoice in him.